Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Today, we not only have a nice little slice of crime history, but we've got a cherry of a mystery for the top. Unless you happen to be from a certain rainy little northwest corner of the United States, I'll bet you haven't heard of this one, but it's incredibly interesting nonetheless. I'm excited to have J.D. Chandler on the podcast today. He is a well-known crime historian and writer in Portland, Oregon, and has written extensively about the gruesome goings-on in the Rose City. Among the titles of his books, Murder and Mayhem in Portland, Oregon, Portland on the Take, Mid-Century Crime Bosses, Civic Corruption and Forgotten Murders, and his newest tome, Murder and Scandal in Prohibition, Portland, currently available for pre-sale on Amazon.com and due to be released on February 1st. That's the book we're going to be talking about today, and one story in particular, The Portland Torso Murder Case. Thank you for joining me today, Mr. Chandler. Glad to be here. Your newest book, co-written with Teresa Griffin Kennedy, contains lots of stories of Portland during the 1920s. Before we talk about the murder itself, let's set the backdrop. Tell us about Portland during the Prohibition years under Mayor George Baker. And I'm assuming that things were not exactly on the level, were they? (laughs) Well, yes and no. Um, There's a couple of ideas that we kind of need to understand to really get what was happening in the, in Portland during prohibition. And then that kind of helps us to understand what happened in 1946. That's known as the torso murder case. One of the most forgotten Portland murders. It's not really forgotten though. People have always kind of kept this idea of this torso murder open. It's just never been solved. People, that's what keeps people interested is no one knows what happened. But in order to understand it, we need to go back quite a bit. And we have to understand the idea, the law enforcement idea of vice crimes. 
there are particular crimes that are classified as vice crimes, and they usually involve alcohol, drugs, sex, and gambling. They all go really together, uh, often all happening in the same place. And um, in Portland, in our earliest days, one of our very first laws that we passed was against gambling, but they never meant to enforce it completely. What they meant was to contain the crime, because gambling was a big source of income for the city, and alcohol too. Without alcohol sales, the city couldn't have survived in its earliest days. Sure. Um, so they ne- needed to contain this. So our very first police chief, he didn't, he didn't become uh, city marshal until the 1860s during the Civil War, and then he became uh, our first police chief in 1879, James LaPaz, was what was known as a black leg gambler. If you look at old Western movies, these are the fancy-dressed guys who come into town, take everybody's money, and then move on to the next town. They were not always popular. Sometimes they were kind of legendary figures. James Lopez was not really a legendary figure. He came here to settle down. He came from the gold fields of California where there had been quite a bit of violence. He actually had to defend his, he called it a store. It was basically a saloon. But he had to defend it from gunmen at one point. So when he came to Portland, he was looking to settle down. But gambling was his business. So he opened the Orofino Theater and the Gem Saloon, which was attached to it right next door, became probably the highest class drinking gambling establishment in the city. It was uh, originally it was kind of a variety theater with, uh, you know, dancing girls and, and things like that. It eventually became one of the important theaters in town. Lopez was a Democrat. So Democratic Party often held meetings there. Public meetings were held there. It became kind of a significant social space. But as the owner of this organization and as the chief of police, he kind of created this institution where the police were involved in vice crimes in order to contain them. In other words, some people are allowed to commit those crimes as long as they pay the city. So the first police chief was a gambler and a saloon owner, definitely an auspicious start and an interesting beginning to organize law enforcement in Portland. So let's jump to Prohibition and Mayor George Baker. 1916, the state passed the law that made alcohol illegal in Oregon. It wasn't what we call what they called a bone dry law, not until uh, about a year later because you could still buy alcohol out of state and, and bring it in for personal use. You could possess a certain amount of alcohol for personal use, things like that. You just couldn't legally go out and buy it and consume it in public. But the drinking never stopped. The selling booze never stopped. Sure. Um, some places stayed open. You know, and this is the story. This is the story of prohibition, is the resistance to the law. The city tried really hard to enforce that law for about a year, really unsuccessfully. They couldn't get juries to convict on liquor cases, I have two cases in the Multnomah County courts where juries deliberating bootlegging charges asked to have the evidence in the jury room with them. So they bring in the jug of liquor that they seized. The jury drank it, and then there wasn't any evidence for the crime, so they had to acquit. <laughs> wow. This happened twice. In a separate case, the judge drank the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> and he defended his right to do it in court. <laughs> it, was, it was a crazy time. The laws were kind of forced on Portland, and so Multnomah County juries didn't want to convict under these laws, and so they skirted them wherever they could. Now, that changed over time. As it, as it became more and more obvious that criminals were doing this, the juries changed a little bit. But George Baker is kind of at the heart of this all, and Baker was a very popular man. He came to Portland in 1890. 
uh, as an actor, and he eventually became probably the most prominent theater manager in town. He was interested in politics. Uh, in 1917, he got elected mayor and then took office early in 1918. And I don't have evidence to prove that he thought this stuff out and he decided to do these things that he did, but the proof is really in the actions that he took. Because what he did is he institutionalized vice crime within the city government. It was a theory of law enforcement at the time called containment, and it became even much more popular later on in the 40s and 50s when organized crime kind of seized control of a lot of this stuff. And Baker really kind of opened the door for that. Basically, he had a police chief, who was Leon Jenkins, career police officer who had been on the force for about 10 years at that time, a very progressive police chief. He believed in modern police methods. He introduced fingerprinting and forensic evidence and automobile patrols. Uh, all of these things came, uh, uh, even some of the very first use of radio by police in the country, although the next police chief was the one who really introduced radio. Uh, Leon Jenkins really did the groundwork for that. So a very progressive police chief. But Baker also had what I consider a crime chief, and this was a man named Bobby Evans. He was a popular boxer before World War I, and after the war, he was a referee and a boxing promoter. He was appointed matchmaker by the City Boxing Commission in 1820, okay. and so his nickname was Matchmaker Bobby. He was the one who kept the Chicago Syndicate away from Portland by allowing them in. The Chicago Syndicate is Al Capone's organization that took control of prohibition in the Midwest and also handled all, almost all of the gambling, especially slot machines, on the West Coast. So all of these little taverns and bars around Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana uh, would have slot machines in them, and Al Capone was the one who was taking the money from that. I didn't actually realize that Al Capone's influence stretched all the way west to Portland. A lot of people, a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, This is one of the things that really fascinates me is that there hasn't been that much research done on West Coast organized crime. You know, people know about Seattle, people know a little bit about L.A., but to, to look at this stuff, it's, it's just fascinating to me. Because in the early 20s, it was actually the New Orleans Syndicate uh, that colonized the West Coast and planted families in Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle. I have always assumed that they tried to plant a family in Portland and were not successful with it. Hmm. Portland has always been very protective of itself. We don't like outsiders to come here and take over. So we have kept them away, and we've done that in crime just as much as in anything else. Uh, because we had as much organized crime as any city that had an uh, Italian mob in it. Uh, but these were our guys doing this. <laughs> we'll, we'll handle this. Outsiders, just stay out. <laughs> so back to Mayor George Baker. Okay, so he's got Bobby Evans keeping the mob out. And by keeping the mob out, that means being the mob. He ran speakeasies. He, he took tribute from criminals like Frank Kodat, who was running the boarding house on uh, East Water Street that uh, was the front for an uh, armed robbery ring. And their, their motto was, no jobs in Portland. So they uh, robbed banks and businesses and post offices in Washington, California, all over Oregon. As long as they didn't do, do jobs in Portland, uh, that was considered kosher. They were protected while they were here. Right. And then some other people kind of took that over over the years. And then uh, people like Royden Enlow, who, were run, who was running the slot machines and coin-operated machines in town, basically as a protection racket. Enlow is the type of businessman who would come into your business, say a small store or something, 
And if you didn't want to take his pinball machine or his slot machine for your business, you might not be in business much longer because we're going to burn the place or we're going to smash the place up or we're going to beat you up. So, you know, he had a lot of people taking his slot machines and he paid tribute to Bobby Evans. So as long as they made their payoff to Evans, then they were legitimate businesses. The police didn't hassle them as long as they didn't become violent, you know, overly violent. As long as they didn't call attention to themselves, the police could ignore that. And they would go after people who, who weren't authorized or people who were in competition or often what it was is it was uh, the smaller operators, you know, the Italian housewife who was making a vat of wine in her basement or the guy who was brewing beer in his garage. You know, those are the, those are the people that they would go after. So Portland ended up with the reputation as the best enforcement of prohibition laws in the country. We were considered to be the driest city in the country. The price of a pint of whiskey was two or three times higher than anywhere else on the West Coast in Portland because we were so good at enforcing this law. But at the same time that we had that reputation, we also became the main distribution point for bonded whiskey on the West Coast Hmm. (laughs) because we had this steady flow of whiskey first from California, where it was still legal when uh, Prohibition started in Oregon, and then from Canada, and it was high-quality bonded whiskey. But anyway, we've got this dichotomy of the best enforcement of Prohibition in the country, plus, you know, the best source of liquor that there is. It turns out, the evidence that Teresa and I found in researching the book was that the basement of the Central Precinct, which was down in 2nd and Oak, the building is still there, uh, but it's not the police department anymore, but the basement was where they kept the liquor evidence. And that became like the major source of supply of alcohol for Mayor Baker, city council members, and all of these powerful people that were part of uh, the city hall crowd. Because what Baker's real goal was to have the reputation for excellent law enforcement, but also to keep liquor available for him and his buddies. And on top of it, the city was getting about $100,000 a month uh, from illegal alcohol sales plus another 50000 a month from gambling operations, plus another twenty five to 30000 a month from prostitution. So in a time when the city was really pretty broke, we had this huge amount of money coming in. And it was handled through a couple of various ways, and it went into a lot of different hands. But in a big way, it was part of what kept the city going. And that is an astounding amount of money for the 1920s. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. Almost $200,000 a month. I don't know even what the, I would have to do some research to figure out what the exchange rate would be, but we're talking at least a couple of million dollars a month. Uh, you know, that's, that's not a bad income. <laughs> even for a city, it's not bad. And it was, most of it was going through the police department. So you see all kinds of things. You see uh, uniformed police officers delivering loads of illegal liquor in uniform. You see evidence disappearing from court cases. And, you know, the city council members drinking it up at his, you know, hunting lodge out by Mount Hood. <laughs> you see all of this stuff going on. You have open bootlegging going on with at Sadie Martin's place, which is down, it would be on PSU campus now. But the police drank there. Some of the city government members drank there occasionally. A lot of people would go through. And she was always willing to cooperate with the police. Now, according to Floyd Marsh, who was um, the head of the, they called it the Moral Squad, He had a force of officers who were special officers. Uh, They were the mayor's secret police, and Marsh said that they were able and willing to do anything short of murder. And they were involved in break-ins, blackmail, false arrest setups, all kinds of things came out of this squad. Their main purpose, what they were originally created for, was to gather evidence 
so that the moral squad could serve search warrants on suspected drinking parlors. So this moral squad has a group of goons, police officers that basically run around Portland unchecked, <laughs> dealing in crime. And this is a good setup for the murder that we're about to talk about. But we still have to skip ahead a few years to the spring and summer of 1946. A series of packages are found floating in the Willamette River in Portland. How were they discovered and what was inside? Okay, this is a great question. The first package was discovered by a group of people that were walking along the Willamette. Now, you have to realize the Willamette at this time was extremely polluted. I give some of the details of it in the book, but it's a, it's a smelly river. All of the cities along the Willamette, all the way up to Portland, have been dumping their sewage just directly into the river. Most of them not even doing any treatment. At least Portland, we did some minor treatment of it before we dumped it. But the river is a smelly river. So as in the spring, even though the river smells bad, people still like to go walk by the river. and The river is a big part of Portland life. But these three people notice a burlap sack floating in the river. One of them said he thought it might, might have been a sack of dead cats. I don't know why they fished it to the side. You know, if I saw a bag of dead cats floating, I don't know if I would want to actually look in it. But for some reason, these guys did. And they got a stick and they fished it over to the side and they opened it up and they found it contained the torso of a woman and I think one of her legs. I can't remember exactly if the first package had a leg or not, but uh, it was at least her torso. The Willamette is a, a business river in those days. You have barges going up and down the river. You have tugboats. It was a very busy river. And so some guys who had been uh, bringing logs down the river remembered another burlap sack that they'd seen. So they went back to check on it, opened it up, and found one of the legs. And so over the next couple of months, more of these packages are found. And eventually all of the, all of the body parts except the hands and feet were found. Now the head had very unique dentures and extensive dental work. So there was a lot of optimism that they were going to be able to identify this body. Dental work was the main way to identify an unidentified body in those days. Uh, so they thought, oh, well, these dentures, somebody's going to know. So the people who took over the investigation were two detectives from the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office. And through our uh, research, Teresa and I managed to get their investigative record. Um, so we know what they did. Basically, they spent almost two years tracking down missing women. They got reports from all over the country, all over Oregon, with these women who were missing. That might be the torso victim. Some of them, they, they really thought they had the, they had the victim and uh, spent a lot of time and money tracking them down, uh, but it turned out not to be. So after a couple of years of this, they're starting to think, well, we might not ever figure out who this is. And they tracked the, the dentures. Uh, they actually had a couple of hot leads on the dentures, too, that looked good. And those kind of fizzled out. And then they just stopped. Now, the Oregon State Police continued to investigate. And uh, there were several lines of investigation. They followed up until the mid-50s. And then they kind of gave up on it. But the big mystery has always been, why did they stop? Did they just give up hope? You know, I've talked to a lot of homicide detectives, and those guys don't give up hope very easily. If they think that they might be able to solve a murder, or if they're afraid they can't solve a murder, they never give up. You know, an unsolved murder sits very heavily on most homicide detectives. They hate it. So there had to be a reason that they didn't investigate any further. 
this is where my investigation was starting. You know, I, I knew all of this about the body parts. I didn't know really what the police investigation was, but I could assume that that's what it was. But I had some real serious questions, and I don't like to let those questions go. When I was doing the research on Portland on the Take, I came across this character, Anna Schrader. And she's a fascinating person. She's uh, a representative of something, I think, that's significant about Portland in those days. And she grabbed, she grabbed your attention. And she disappeared in 1946, hmm. probably only a few weeks before these body parts started showing up in the river. So my first question was, could Anna Schrader have been the victim? So I asked Sergeant Krumenacher, uh, who is the Clackamas County Sheriff's detective who reopened the case in 2004 and who's been trying to solve it ever since, I asked him, well, was Anna Schrader ever considered as a victim? He'd never heard of Anna Schrader, and there was no evidence that anybody ever considered her a victim of anything. And even worse, there's no evidence that anybody ever investigated her disappearance. The only way that we know about it is that someone placed classified ads in the Oregonian for three weeks uh, asking for information about Anna Schrader and what happened to her. We don't know who it was because it was an uh, anonymous ad with an Oregonian post office box. But somebody was looking for her. And so after I finished my last book, I couldn't give up this idea. Anna Schrader disappeared at a really convenient time. There's a lot of people who wanted Anna Schrader dead. So the chance that she might be a murder victim was pretty high. Um, that's where that's where Teresa came in. Uh, Teresa is uh, someone that I met on an earlier project, and I really admired her research skills. She's a tenacious researcher. When she gets a question that she can't answer, she does everything. She looks everywhere that she can possibly think of to try and answer it. So I thought, okay, let's see what she can find on Anna Schrader. And she really uncovered the stuff, and she kind of uh, really became committed to Anna Schrader. We're pretty much convinced that she's the victim. And her, her as the victim not only presents most likely murderer, but it also presents the motive for why the murder wasn't investigated thoroughly. Because this was a serious question for us when we started looking at that is, why did they stop searching for her? And from my research before about the relationship between the Portland Police Bureau and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office on the unsolved murders from later in the 40s, I learned that the Portland Police Bureau had a huge amount of influence on the sheriff's departments. And if, the, if anybody could make them stop investigating a murder, it would be the Portland Police Bureau. So we had to see if the police bureau would have a motive for covering up a murder. Obviously, they had the motive for covering up murders because they'd done it in these other cases. Right. But in this particular case, that's where the research became extremely rich because uh, Anna Schrader had become such an enemy of Leon Jenkins, the police chief, that when he was reinstated as police chief in 1946 for a second term as police chief, that could have been enough to make her come forward again and maybe even make threats against him. Back after a word from our sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. 
To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned to the interview. So let's talk about Anna Schrader. She was a pretty interesting woman with an interesting life, but got a little too closely involved with the police department, and especially Officer William Bruning. Yes, uh, Bill Bruning. Okay, so Anna Schrader is a woman who came to Portland in 1910. And she came to Portland during a period of time that Teresa and I had decided to call the Girl Rush. Uh, it was the first major influx of women into the Portland area, specifically women. Because up till 1905, the majority of migration to Portland and in Oregon had been young men or married families. So there were almost no single women except the single women that were born here. Um, in the 1870s, it was about 20, 20 men for every woman in Portland. By 1905, it was about five to one. So still a very favorable ratio. Starting in 1905, young women started coming to Portland in a major wave. And by 1907, it was about 7,000 a year. And it went on up until at least the beginning of uh, World War I. So Anna Schrader is a part of this historical movement of women coming to Oregon. She came with some baggage from her past. She was on the run from a bad marriage, and we don't know if she got divorced from her first husband or not. It is possible that her second marriage was bigamous, and hmm. it's possible that that was hell over her head as blackmail. That's just theory, because she may have been divorced. But when she got to Portland in 1910, one of her first goals was to find a husband because um, single women at that time were very socially suspect. If you were a single woman, unless you, you know, were very young or a student, but unless you were married, you were really not socially acceptable, and especially at Anna's age because she was in her late 20s when she came here. Um, so a woman in her late 20s almost had to be married. 
So she married Edward Schrader, who was a boarder in the house where she lived and who worked for the railroads. But he gave her this social cover so she can now start becoming active socially, and she did. She was very active in the, in the Republican Party. Uh, she was very active in the women's clubs. She became kind of famous for her swimming. She, she really worked in 1916, 1917, 1918. She really tried to get the attention of Portland. She wanted attention. Uh, she was a very attractive woman. She was very vivacious, and people liked her. Uh, she ran for Rose Queen. She was one of the Rose Queen princesses. But she was not a real realistic person. And she, didn't, she was very intelligent, but she didn't have a lot of education. Um, so she kind of lived a lot of her life in a fantasy world. And she started having an affair with uh, Bill Bruining. They met in 1916, but they both agreed that they didn't start their affair until 1923. But for six or seven years, she lived kind of a double life. Um, she was married to Edward Schrader, but when he was at work and he worked nights, she would pretend that she was married to Officer Bruning. And uh, they spent a lot of time at her house. She said at one point that she cooked dinner for him every night. Her neighbors complained about the police car parked in front of her house all the time. And uh, other cops told Bruning he needed to start parking somewhere else because he was calling attention to himself. And at the same time, she was, she was leading this double life as the private detective working for the police department and turning her friends in for drinking. So a very compromised woman. It came to a big head in 1929 uh, when there were some other scandals in the police department that kind of got the public's attention. And so people were looking at the police very carefully and Anna and Bill were not being discreet about their relationship at all. They were pretty much right out in the open and uh, that was dangerous. And somehow Bruning's wife found out. Now, some people think that Anna told her. Anna claimed that she never did. Uh, but I think Anna might have told her, you know, maybe not straight out, but just let her know. Because Bruning decided to break off the relationship in the summer of 1929. And Anna didn't like that one bit. And then he started a campaign of rumors about her, saying that she was crazy, trying to undermine her credibility if, if she came forward with charges about this stuff. And she may have had some kind of an emotional breakdown that summer because it ended up uh, with her waiting for him outside of his house and pulling a gun on him when he got there. And she actually fired a couple of shots, although it's pretty clear that they were fired accidentally. And he beat her up and took the gun from her. Uh, but she got arrested. It, and suddenly their affair was right out in public and a huge scandal, just exactly what the mayor and the police chief did not want. So they tried to shove it under the rug, but Anna was not willing in any way to be quiet about it. And she started talking, she felt betrayed by the chief, by some of the actions that he'd taken. So she started to tell about some of the things that she'd learned uh, working with the mayor's secret police uh, and implicating the police in corruption, illegal liquor. She was just telling it all. And she claimed that she had even more evidence. She said that she would rock Portland. She was still trying to get attention for herself was a big part of what she was doing. Yeah. Uh, but she became the most vocal opponent of Mayor Baker and Chief Jenkins. She testified at grand juries on police corruption. Uh, she participated in the campaign to recall the mayor in 1930 and then another one in 1932. Along with the prohibition stuff, a lot of other corruption had become very institutionalized within the city government, and it was all starting to come out at the end of George Baker's fourth term after he'd been in office for many years. Uh, it was all starting to, to come forward. You know, you can't keep doing this stuff secretly forever. 
uh, people start to notice it after a while. Right. And so there was a lot of charges. City Commissioner John Mann went to jail over his running of the Water Bureau. A lot of things were going on, and Baker was really under fire. And she added fuel to that very vocally. She even ran for mayor, kind of a brief campaign, but she was a candidate for mayor in 1932. Then after about 1934, she became very quiet. And the big mystery has been, why did she not expose this stuff? Why did she not tell what she said she was going to tell? And why did she stay quiet? The only answer really is that she had to have been blackmailed. And so there's a lot of speculation about what she might have been blackmailed on, but uh, no real way to tell at this point. But it's pretty clear they were holding something over her head. Uh, so her husband died in 1941, and she just is living her life in southeast Portland very quietly. In 1946, she disappeared. She just walks away, and no one knows what happened to her. But 1946 is very significant timing because Leon Jenkins was police chief from 1917 to, I want to say, 1932. Yeah, it was when Mayor Carson took over is when Jenkins became inspector of the night watch. So he stepped down from police chief, and he, he remained police inspector, basically in command of the night watch. Uh, and then Harry Niles was chief for a while. In 1946, Niles became very ill and couldn't continue as police chief, so they needed someone to, to cover the rest of his term. And uh, so they promoted Jenkins from inspector back to police chief. So he was police chief again from 1946 to 1948. So my theory is that his promotion to police chief motivated Anna Schrader to come forward again. And she may have threatened to expose him if he accepted that position. Hmm. And so I think that Chief Jenkins gave permission for her to be killed. And that it seems very obvious to me, if, if it's true that Anna Schrader was the torso victim, Bill Bruning almost had to be the murderer. Uh, because the way the torso victim was killed was a very intimate and personal thing. Uh, well, she was killed with a blow to the head. But before that, she was tortured with a blowtorch over her private parts. Basically, her privates were burned with a blowtorch. That's not something that you would really do to someone that you didn't hate. Right. And so whoever did that killing, it was, you know, it was not a cold-blooded killing. It was a very hot-blooded killing. And Bill Bruning may have been sitting on hatred for her from 1929 to 1946, maybe even imagining how he could take his revenge on her. So that's my personal theory. It's really conjecture, and we can never really prove it at this point. But we have a lot of evidence that supports it, and it's all presented in the book, and it's also presented on the podcast. The motive seems pretty obvious, and as, as you were telling the story, I was waiting to ask you about the 17-year gap. You wouldn't think that if one of these guys wanted her dead, they'd wait until she had decided to live a, a quiet, unassuming life. But what you say makes makes perfect sense. Jenkins finally taking control of the police department again might have been the catalyst for all of this. It makes sense to me. And, and if you look at Bill Bruning's life, um, he was a, a very prominent lieutenant. He was a rising star of the police department, and his career was just ended in the summer of 1929 in the scandal. And he was not able to even find work for five or six years. And then by World War II, he finally was hired as a special police officer, which were the, their glorified security guards. They're paid by the retail businesses, and they check on the doors at night. Uh, that was what he was doing 
1946. So from this rising star of the police department, he's working as a glorified security guard in 1946. He could have been very bitter about that. So you believe that this disgraced security guard, former policeman, might still have been connected to Jenkins to the point where Jenkins might have discussed her murder? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Bruning was working for the police department. He was a special officer. Um, and Jenkins, even when he wasn't chief, he was uh, inspector. And, you know, politically, Jenkins had most of the power in the police bureau, uh, even when he wasn't chief, because Burton Lawson was a was an outsider. He wasn't from the Portland Police Bureau. He's the, he's the police chief who famously said, everyone knows where gambling is in this town except me. <laughs> because no one would tell him. No one would, and he couldn't figure out what the moral squad was doing. No one would ever tell him what the moral squad was doing. So he, he was a very frustrated police chief. And then Harry Niles was kind of a Jenkins protege. They had been colleagues on the police bureau. Uh, Niles was a, a long-term officer as well, and also of a progressive bent. He believed in a progressive police department. He was the chief who, who uh, first brought in education requirements for police officers. So we were one of the earlier American police departments that I think it was a high school education was the, was the requirement, but, but he liked to hire college graduates as well. Uh, so we, we started having college graduates in the police bureau at that time, uh, which is the 30s. You know, because before that, police in Portland were hired for their muscle and definitely not their brains. You know, we had some good detectives. There, there are definitely good Portland detectives that go back a long way, like Sam Simmons and Joe Day and some of those guys who were uh, quite famous in the 19th century and early 20th century. But mostly it was a bunch of brawny guys who could muscle their way through problems. Um, and that's why you see in the early part of the 20th century, like I think starting in 1905, a huge proportion of our murders are not solved. You know, it actually became a scandal for a while in 1905 because I think we had a dozen unsolved murders at that time, which was a high number. You know, think about it today uh, with, I think it's 26 or 27 murders this last year. If half of those went unsolved, <laughs> people would start to notice. Right. Uh, and Chief Jenkins, so he had a uh, Chief Jenkins had a pretty good relationship with Niles, so Jenkins always had a lot of the power in the police bureau, and uh, Bruning was working for the police bureau again starting in 1941, uh, obviously as a special officer, so not a sworn officer, but there's definitely the contact that he, and Jenkins was on the night shift, so Bruning was probably reporting to him. I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Can you still make changes to your book? <laughs> No, it's a little late for that. <laughs> but that is the thing. is It does keep coming. It does, definitely keeps coming. This is a cold case that has been on your radar for a while, and you've been investigating this for at least 10 years. At least, yeah. And you've almost single-handedly kept it not only in the public eye, but kept it on the radar of the major crimes unit of the local sheriff's department. Have you had a chance to actually sit down and discuss this with them? Um, well, I haven't actually sat down and talked with, uh, it's Detective John Krumenacher from uh, Clackamas County Sheriff's Department is the detective on the case. The case was reopened in 2004, uh, and it is an active case now. But as far as I can see, no new evidence came forward, uh, and the case hasn't really moved anywhere. I think, I can't really speak for the Detective Krumenacher, but I don't think that there's a whole lot of hope that this is a case that can be solved. All of the evidence disappeared. Sometime in the 50s, the dentures and well, the skull, uh, all of the body parts were probably cremated. Uh, all of the clothing has been lost. There's nothing that remains of the evidence. 
So there's no way that DNA testing could be done or anything like that. So I, I don't think that there's a lot of hope that there can be a solution to this case. Uh, in fact, uh, in my podcast, one of our big questions that we grappled with at the beginning was, can you solve a case after 75 years? And um, another one of the, the people who participates in the podcast is uh, Don Dupe, who was a Portland Police Bureau homicide detective in the 70s. So he's a professional at solving murders. And his theory is that you can't solve the case because you can't take someone to, to trial and convict them for murder, but you can figure out what happened and you can be pretty sure that you know what the situation is. The key is who had the motive, who benefited from the murder, and what explains the cover-up of the, of the case? You know, Why did the police stop investigating? And our theory does cover all of those. It, it logically explains all of those. It has to remain a theory because uh, there's just no way to say 75 years later, this is what actually happened. We can't even say for sure that Anna Schrader is the victim. But if she is the victim, it's pretty clear what happened to her. <laughs> right. So you've talked about your podcast a couple of times. Would you mention the name of it? And tell us about your blog, too. Yeah, my podcast is called Murder by Experts. And it's, I have a lot of fun with it. I'm, I'm an old radio enthusiast. Um, I, I love old radio shows. And I have a huge collection of them. I've been collecting them since I was probably 12 years old. My grandmother got me hooked. And I've been, uh, I would take them off the air and then I started trading with people. I have thousands and thousands of shows now. And so I, I use some of the sounds from those shows in the podcast to kind of set the mood or set the tone or give you the idea of what radio used to sound like. Sure. So I think that the podcast has a very unique sound. But what, it, what it's really about is looking at the underlying text of the whole thing is murder and art, how they go together. And, and I often, in the different episodes of the show, I often focus on music that revolves around the murder. Uh, but one of the strong threads on the podcast is our series called Dark River, which is about the Torso murder case. And we just start at the beginning with our questions about Anna Schrader, and then we discuss that as we research the case. So it gives you a chance to look at how our thought and our knowledge of the case developed and what we were thinking as it went along. And then it all developed into this book as well. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a fun podcast and it doesn't only deal with that. I deal with some other Portland crimes and uh, we get into a little bit of radio drama even at one point because we dramatize one of the stories out of Don Dupay's book. We have a lot of fun with it. I, I'm a radio enthusiast. That's uh, Murder by Experts, which is in Podomatic.com. Uh, and then, of course, I've been doing my, my two blogs for some time. My Slabtown Chronicle blog, which is a, a blog dealing with uh, historical murders in Portland. Um, I've been doing that since, I don't remember, 2004 or something like that. I can't remember when I started it, but it's been quite a long time now. Uh, and then Weird Portland is the blog I started after I wrote Hidden History in Portland. And it was... I was looking for a place where I could put some of the interesting and odd stories about Portland history that are not murder-related, because I, I want Slabtown to focus on murder stories. Uh, so Weird Portland deals with everything other than murder in Portland history. So Weird Portland is at weirdportland.blogspot.com, and Slabtown Chronicle is at portlandcrime.blogspot.com. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. 
And that's it for this week's episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting from every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. And that includes, besides the good old USA, of course, the UK, Canada, Australia, Sweden, Mexico, Germany, Taiwan, and Brazil. I'm Eric Rivenis. Until we meet again. And then I'll still be Eric Rivenis. I suppose. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.